you found the home of the Reaching Out podcast, where we explore asset-based practice for learning in life. Focusing on personal experience and research-informed methods, we seek to understand and center strengths in our education community among students, educators, and families. Within each episode, you will find a courageous space filled with better ways to bring out the best in each other. Welcome to the show. And as always, we'd like to start out with a thank you to our business partner, Ferrant, an identity-focused learning hub. At Ferrant, every person learns their purpose. We are honored to have uh, Corey Wallace join us uh, this evening. It is really uh, quite amazing to have someone with such a breadth of experience in equity and in how to really reach out to our students from all different backgrounds. So Corey is a multilingual anti-oppression educator and consultant dedicated to building collaborative partnerships that enrich the lives of marginalized people through community outreach locally and internationally. She has been a she has um, worked internationally uh, as well as locally. Um, she was the first person to lead and found the director position for equity at Niles Township. Um, she has uh, served in the Chicagoland coordinator for the national seats seeking educational equity and diversity program uh, project here. Uh, she has have um, tremendous experience, not only again as an educator, but also as a trainer of trainers when it comes to equity um, here. So we are really, again, extremely lucky to have her. Um, her master's is from the University of Michigan and her um, educational leadership is from uh, Western Michigan University. Corey, welcome from me as well. I've sat under your uh, leadership and um equity training and have benefited greatly from it. And you're so um, knowledgeable yet so down to earth. And we're just excited to have you on the program. When I look at your bio on one of the projects that you're involved with, they you refer to yourself as a parent and bilingual educator. And I think your, your first qualification is um, is just your, is a personal one. And I, and I think you relate to people that way as well. So super excited to talk to you about asset-based learning um, and just how you strive to um, help educators see and uh, and lift um, all students, especially students who have suffered from uh, bias and oppression. Thank you so much. So it's really an honor to be here with both of you. I'm so flattered. Thank you. So let's start. Uh, Corey, as mentioned in very short biography, we could never capture everything that you've done and everything that you have accomplished. But in the in the short bio, we tried to do that uh, and give you some justice to who you are. But in looking at that, you have worked tirelessly to bring equity education to those of us who serve students in our school communities. Can you tell us about your own equity journey and how did you arrive where you are today? Yeah, um, it's really sort of non-traditional. I, um, I am the uh, daughter and of Pam and Sonny Cockrell, who, you know, my mom is, um, I have three Russian Jewish grandparents from, great grandparents from Russia on my mom's side, one from Austria. And on my dad's side, he's from Columbus, Mississippi. Um, he was the first in his family to go to college and they 
really, you know, I just, I feel like I come from a village of people who have done really extraordinary things and who've always been um, supportive of me from a very, very young age. I had models through my parents and my grandparents um, and they always emphasized, you know, education and just, just like good humanity. Right. So um, grew up in a, in a household where, you know, if somebody needed something, a place to eat, something, to, a place to sleep, like we always had people in the house. If we saw someone, if we were driving, my dad saw someone on the side of the road, he would stop and we would help, you know, strangers. And I feel like that really has influenced all the work that I've done, whether it's been in the classroom or um, outside of schools, um, because I've been very fortunate to work in, in a variety of spaces. Um, so all of that has really sort of gotten me to this point. I mean, in terms of my career, I started out teaching Spanish at Evanston High School. That was my first job. Mm -hmm. And um, while I was there, I was very, very fortunate to work under Dr. Alan Olson and Dr. Laura Cooper. Um, and I co-chaired the school improvement team. And so a lot of the work that we did at that time sort of laid the foundation for much of the work that ha goes on today at Evanston Township High School. Um, and so that was sort of the, the tra my trajectory as an educator. Um, I taught there until my kids, until um, my second son was born and I was home with my kids for a while. And then um, their dad's work took us, our, our family overseas. So I, I spent um, almost four years in Asia um, we moved when my kids were two, four, and six years old, and they're now young adults. They're now 21, 23, and 25. But um, while I was there, it was very, very humbling because I learned about diversity beyond the binary of black and white, which is so often part of um, sort of conversations around race here in the United States. And so I learned about biases that I have and had, um, the stereotypes that I had about, you know, the Japanese language and you know, again, having the opportunity to not only live in those places, but to teach in those places really informed my understanding of education as well. So all of those things, I think, really contributed to, you know, what I'm doing now. Um, we came back in 2007 um, and I ended up running the first um, parent center for Niles Township, which is a neighboring community to you all in Maine and very similar um, demographics. And so I was during that time reporting to 10 superintendents of the schools um, that feed into Niles North and West High School. And I was helping adult learners who were learning English as a second or third language, helping them to support their children in the US American school system. Um, so it felt very um, similar to my time living in Asia in terms of being in a very international space, um, but also really helped me to see um, sort of the disparities that we have here amongst, you know, when we talk about diversity, who's included and who's actually celebrated and how are people celebrated. So I did that. And then I, um, after those five years, went on to be, as you said, the first director of equity um, at uh District 219. And then um, for the past seven years, I've been on my own working with schools, with any organization that really is interested in doing um, a deep dive into um, understanding systems of oppression and, um, and what it means to have a truly inclusive space and to be anti-racist through an intersectional lens. So I, I work um, with, with a variety of entities, um, not on one and done projects, but people who really want to take a multi-year commitment and look at transforming the organizational culture in which they're a part. That was sort of a long answer to your question. So it, it leads beautifully into the next question. So I don't know if you want to grab a drink of water while <laughs> <laughs> we keep going. Um, 
But what, in your opinion, is the greatest obstacle educators face in making our classrooms and spaces safe and welcoming for everyone? Since you've worked with so many different adults in different situations, what do you see as the biggest or the greatest obstacle? You know, I think um, the administrative support, right? So by that, I mean, specifically classroom teachers, Sometimes there's a lot, there's things on websites that are say, said and, you know, with recent um, social media, there's hashtags. But when it comes down to the actual actions, sometimes there's a disconnect between the walk and the talk, right? So mm-hmm. you're saying, okay, build this inclusive space, make sure everyone can bring their full selves through the door. But then you have examples where um, an educator has done that and they have been reprimanded, the school has not backed them, they end up in the paper, they're, they don't have their job. And so people are afraid, right? That fear is very real. And when an administration does not truly back its people, it makes it hard for classroom teachers to create spaces that are um, truly safe for their students, because they're worried about their jobs. Ultimately, they're worried about being, you know, doing something and it being misinterpreted and then not having the support. So I think, um, you know, when you have the top levels of an organization truly behind and engaged with the process, it just makes it a lot easier for um, the work to happen in ways that are supporting students and for that to translate to a student experience of feeling like they can be a part and be who they are and bring all that they are into the classroom space. So, so Corey, based on that answer, can you elaborate a little bit more with if uh, if you have seen that level of support in some uh, schools and districts where the administrative supports the teachers and the teachers can take that risk, which is what I'm hearing you say, is that risk of really receiving my kids authentically into my classroom and not uh, fear that I'm going to be reprimanded in any way for taking that risk. Have you, when that happens, have you seen certain characteristics or certain things that happen inside those classrooms that make it a more inclusive environment? Yeah, I think you then start to see um, really strong student, uh, the work that starts to happen at the student level, not only by the students, but like they themselves, they're, they're getting that learning and then they're able to take that and translate that. So if you look at, for example, um, the, the social consciousness summits that happen at Evanston Township High School. So they have summits for um, LGBTQ students, um, South Asian, Middle Eastern, female empowerment, Black students, Latinx students. Those are an outgrowth of the work that's happened with the adults in the building, right? Because um, they now have spaces to do that. They're the, I believe they're the only, um, they're leading the way on the North Shore, at least in our area, um, pre-pandemic, they would have a two-day conference every year where they would invite neighboring high schools to their SOAR, Students Organized Against Racism Conference, which was held at, at Northwestern University. It was two days and it was students leading other students, teaching other students about s- the similar work that we do um, with adults in terms of our professional learning. So um, those, I think, are examples where you know, a teacher will feel supported and then can take that to the next level. Um, And I think, you know, I I have to mention Corey Winchester because he is an educator who sponsors that student group and has for years and has touched so many students' um, lives and really, I think, feels and has felt supported and able to to really create an open and inclusive space for kids. Just one more follow-up, just listening to you about um, 
supporting teachers and teachers taking risks and wanting to create the space for students and, and really to lead into um, creating a better, more inclusive environment in our schools. What, what do you say to teachers who express to you fear? They maybe feel like they're walking on eggshells. They might make a mistake. I, I detect that with some of the, sometimes in, in mm-hmm. professional circles that, I, that I've been working in. Um, and uh, I, I know you've probably handled that quite a bit. So I wonder what, what advice do you give? I think it's a great, um, it's a, it's very, it's a pivotal moment for teachers to model that for students. Um, when they're, when students are asking questions or bringing something up into the classroom that the teacher doesn't have the answer to or is uncomfortable with, that's, that is like a, a, a really key moment because the teacher can either sort of pretend and keep going or gloss over it. Mm-hmm. Um, but if they pause and they say, you know what, that is a great question. I really am not sure what the answer is you know, let's everybody go home. You all talk to the people that you know, that you live with. I'm going to do some research. We're going to come back to this tomorrow or whenever it is. Right. And that is an opportunity for them to address that, for them to collaborate with other people, for them to, you know, figure out how they're going to, um, what they're going to do next. Um, and I think, you know, that's, that's the key. That's like the the pivotal moment. Um, but I think the fear is real. And I think, you know, it really depends on people's circumstances. Um, it's a case by case basis, right? Um, everyone is in, in a different situation, but I think today, at least, I hope that there are people that, that, that the feeling of isolation is less. Um, I think years ago, sometimes it was like, oh, I'm the only person who's doing this work. And is there anyone else in my building that I can talk to? And I hope that, you know, I was going to say sadly, but just the reality of what's happened over the past two years, um, there's just a greater consciousness collectively across the country. And I think obviously in our schools where hopefully teachers aren't feeling so alone and feel like they have at least one other person that they can brainstorm with when these hard, challenging situations, you know, come into their classrooms or someone that they can talk to and process with and address. I think that's really phenomenal because you're talking about democratizing learning involving the students in the searching of knowledge and creating solutions together. Uh, We are doing school with the students instead of to them or something like this. So uh, it's such a good encouragement for me as a teacher, but also for other teachers who'll be listening to this. So thanks for that. Yes. Plus again, uh, what you are emphasizing is the importance of not ignoring uh, what the students are bringing up into our classrooms because we are comfortable with it. Being able to just be able to again model and say, I don't know how to handle this right now, but I promise you, I would not ignore it. Um, many of us, and this is something that is important to us, and I want—I wonder your take on this one. Many of us believe that an asset-based approach to education would enable us to acknowledge, respect, and include all of our students in our spaces. How do you see this approach intersecting with the concept of equity? Yeah, I think... Um... I think it's connected, but it's not the same thing, right? So I think asset-based learning is really about um, building on the cultural capital that our students bring, understanding the intersectional identities that they have, um, and really leaning into that, um, leaning leaning into those strengths as a starting point. Um, And so I think that is definitely a key piece, uh, an integral piece of building a more equitable environment, but it's not to be confused with equity. They're different things. Um, You know, I always say in people who've, who know me, you've heard, I'm sure you've heard me say this before, part of the issue, that the challenge that I think we have is people confuse and don't understand the word equity. And when they when we talk about equity, we're not talking about the same thing and it gets confused with equality because they sound similar, right? So if, you know, 
everyone listening, if I give them all a pair of shoes, that's equality. But if I give everyone listening a pair of shoes that fit their feet, that's equity. And that's different, right? And that's different from understanding the different um, pieces that make all of the people who are wearing the shoes that fit their feet, you know, your walk through life is different, right? So that's asset-based learning is, is looking into that and saying, okay, well, these are my life experiences and maybe it doesn't fit a quote unquote traditional way of learning. Um, but there are things that I can bring into the classroom um, that will help me enter and not just help me, but will help the overall inclusivity of the classroom experience and the learning that will take place um, in that space. Research shows that only 40% of high school students feel seen, known, and engaged in their schools. At Ferrant, they are reaching out to those students with an asset-based SEL practice. Their student dashboard serves as an identity-centering digital hub for all learning, and their professional development sequence empowers teachers, educational leaders, and parents to adopt an asset-based framework for reaching every student. Middle and high schools who use the Ferrant Learning Hub and professional development programs have seen consistent improvements in their students' socio-emotional learning and executive functioning. Ferrant is the home of Bubbles, a digital best friend and curator who learns and grows with each person. With Ferrant and Bubbles, each person learns their purpose. Checking, check out the show notes to receive a complimentary consultation about how Ferrant can serve your school and your amazing students. And now back to the show. That's what you just said. So, and it sort of reminds me, one of the projects that I work on is through MSAN, the Minority Student Achievement Network Consortium. And um, we've been doing a project for the past two years with middle and high school students from across the country. So there are school districts who are part of the consortium and um, we meet for two hours, like seven, six or seven times throughout the school year. Um, and we and it's an intersectional social justice collaborative that really allows kids to enter where they are to bring in those different pieces of themselves and to learn about systems. Um, and, and then they do a project um, that they will then share with their school district. Um, so, you know, that work, I think, is I think is a really good example of asset based learning. Right. Um, and they've been through that project. They've been able to engage with people like Dr. Bettina Love and Dr. David Stovall. Um, you know, amongst others, um, to really understand the, themselves as individuals, as part of their school community, and as, as global citizens, truly, right? So we talk about so many different um, systems, right, um, and oppression, and not just, you know, not to feel sorry or feel a victim, be it based on any of those identities, but truly as an asset, like, how do I have some agency and do something about the things that I care about, whether that's environmentalism or sexism or transphobia or whatever it is. So um, I think that that project really sort of brings all of what we're talking about together. Yeah, I think that's a great example, Corey. Thank you so much for sharing that one with us. It just brings to the point that if I know my gifts, if I can identify what I am really good at, and many of our kids really don't, <laughs> you ask them why they would not be able to identify what what are their gifts, what are their talents. Mm -hmm. If I can do that, then I can actively contribute to not only my own growth, but the growth of my community. And yeah. through that work, that's where I can then help bring equity to yeah. the environment and the spaces that I um, work in or represent. Yep, absolutely. So 
the bring it down to the classroom level, thinking about our teachers that are listening. Mm-hmm. I people I think people always enjoy a list. So top three things <laughs> that teachers can do in their classrooms every day to advance student equity. And I'm sure even in answer, asking this question, it probably is situational. But uh, do you have a top three or just a few things you could throw at us? Um, I would say be curious, um, self-aware, and open to feedback. Um, right? You you've got to ask your students like, how am I doing? Is this resonating with you all? How is this landing? Like, you've got to constantly have really open communication with your kids about how you're showing up, right? And obviously be prepared, plan, plan your lesson, but be prepared for everything going sideways and addressing that. Cause that's, what's going to happen. Right. Um, you know, and you said earlier, you know, in my bio, I talk about being a parent because I will say through parenting, you know, you learn so much and you never get to a place where it's like, Oh, just when you think like you've got it under control with the kids, like something else happens and you're like, Oh, gotta figure out how to do that. So I think it's the same thing with teaching. It's, it's truly a lifelong learning process. And the more you can model that with your kids, and let them know that there will be times that they won't have the answer um, and model what it is to struggle to get the answer and to be resourceful and to find it and and just to model those things for them with them. I think that's the best um, that's the best thing you can do. Just just stay curious. I love it. Let me ask you this outside of the classroom. You talked about parenting, but is there any other practice that you engage in that you think helps you cultivate or you've seen for other te- teachers helps them cultivate? this ability to advance equity. Um, I wonder if there's mindfulness practice or anything that you, you would recommend. Um, you know, I really like, uh, the idea of emergent strategy, which comes from Adrian Marie Brown. Um, and she talks a lot about, um, several people's work, Grace Lee Boggs, um, looking at nature, looking at the patterns in nature, of collaboration that translate into how we can better collaborate with each other as human beings. Um, I just really, really like that work. And it does, like you said, have mindfulness in it. Um, and just that use of nature. I think I love to, I, I really just simple things, even on a rainy day, like just appreciating that, okay, it's raining, but that means that, you know, it's going to be really green tomorrow or, or we need that. Like looking at, at the sort of the upsides of what people might, typically see as something negative. Um, so I think that that, that is a practice that I try to do. I am totally, I'm a total nature lover, tree hugger, all that. And I, um, I appreciate all the simple things, you know, all four seasons, all of it. Perhaps your time in Japan influenced you with the forest bathing that they do and so forth. It's always (laughs) intrigued me. Yes. Um, (laughs) Uh, well, we talk about our classrooms as ecosystems. You want our social ecosystems. You want them to be healthy. Yes. Uh, so the idea of invoking um, natural processes is, is to me very compelling as well. So thanks for sharing that. I yeah. do have a, a follow up to that, uh, Corey, because it's outside the classroom. And I love, yes, I love the, the, um, the idea of looking at nature for examples and, and mindfulness. Are there any other things that you would think would help us educators to do outside our classrooms to help us through that? journey because as you said it's, it's always changing right it's a journey it's not a destination um, that you will recommend um, that we do in order to become more equitable in our classrooms yeah i think um the number one thing is if a teacher is 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 only relying on the professional development or learning opportunities that the school's offering that is not going to get you where, where you need to be to serve your kids you have to be 
um, you have to have that internal interest on your own. Um, you know, we want our kids to be independent learners. And so we too have to do that. Right. So, and, and, it, and it, I think that should come through whatever your natural passions are. You know, if you like to crochet, then make sure that your, is, is your crocheting space a really homogenous space or do you crochet with people from various backgrounds? You like to play tennis, you like to watch football, like whatever it is, just pay attention to using, you know, that interest and making sure that there's a variety of people and perspectives represented in that activity that you like to do outside of school. Um, so that you're getting that learning and that perspective. I think that's the the key, the key piece. Um, because, you know, it, it's like we're playing catch up, you know, we talk about like, oh, this work is so much easier with the kids. It's the adults that are hard, because mm -hmm. people do what's comfortable, right? So mm -hmm. getting outside of our comfort zone, um, in ways that are sort of natural makes sense, I think is the best um, way to, to have that sort of flow naturally into your content area. Thank you so much for saying that. What a beautiful advice is paying attention. It's going beyond self-awareness to uh, social awareness, right? To know how my own uh, relationships can change how I see the world and how that will translate to me becoming a better teacher with my students and my families. Wow. So, wow, that that was uh, what a great piece of advice, Corey. Thank you, you so much for that you, one. You didn't notice it because we're we're not on screen here, but Claudia was trying to high five the computer here while you were saying <laughs> that she was so excited. I was like, yes, yes. Thank you for saying that. Yes, it cannot be just the professional <laughs> development that we do from two o'clock to four o'clock in the afternoon. It yeah. has to be truly your life journey. Yeah. It has to be the books that you read, right. the movies that you watch, the people you enjoy spending time with, um, everything that you do. And the examples you gave were beautiful. Something as simple as, yeah, I have a crochet, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, thing that I like to do. Who am I doing it with? Right. Uh, yeah. So thank you. That was a beautiful. Thanks, Corey. Um, yeah. As we come to the end of what is seemed to me only five minutes, because I could hear you speak for hours. Oh. Uh, I was so sad when seed ended, not because mm -hmm. of everything that my other uh, people were contributing, but I couldn't get to hear Corey speak. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> when, uh, when we come to the end of this uh, journey with you, uh, uh, is there anything um, that you want to tell us about our show? is called the reaching out. That's what uh, we're trying to <laughs> lift out of the ground. How can educators reach out across barriers to better connect and serve? Yeah, I think it's that curiosity, right? That I just talked about. It's, it's, it's moving outside of your comfort zone um, in a really intentional way and making that a part of your practice. Um, so leaning into that curiosity and that discomfort, uh, to keep you growing, you know, and you talked about that ecosystem earlier. It was funny, as you were saying that I was thinking about when I first, um, was working with a K-8 district, um, a neighboring district. And we were talking about, you know, what does this look like? And I was doing an audit with them. And I said, you know, I, I'll go back to flowers. I'm like, it's like an eco. I said, it, I use those words. It's an educational ecosystem, right? Where our kids are at the center. And if we're going to grow them, we have to have our teachers and our caregivers and our school board and our administrators all working together 
so that we are truly growing and pouring into our kids. Um, because what we tend to do is, you know, keep adult comfort at the center versus our kids at the center. And mm -hmm. so I think that that that's just a reminder as we're curious and moving outside of our comfort zone, keeping our kids at the center um, and reminding ourselves that that's what we're here for. And that's what keeps that educational ecosystem healthy. This is the uh, part of the show where you say, is there anything else you want to add? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I feel like we've been through every, uh, we, I feel like we're going to get redundant here in a second, but uh, is there anything that you feel like is compelling that, that was you were about to say that got cut off or got left out? You know, the only thing I would um, say, it's at one point we were talking, I was talking about the MSAN Consortium, our Intersectional Social Justice Collaborative. And you talked about, um, I think you were saying about the classroom and like being with the kids, like not only us, you know, imparting information to our students, but learning with them. And that really connects with um, the Democratic Classroom Institute work that I do with Christopher Fontana. Um, he is a, a fellow educator, um, started as a Spanish teacher and um, his work um, and the work that he and I have done both in person and virtually here and in Seattle has really, I think, helped, edu helped educators to cultivate the spaces that you're talking about that really build on our, our students and, and the assets of our students. So just wanted to shout out um, to Christopher because he is an amazing um, educator and someone that I collaborate with on various projects and who I've learned from um, to help keep keep our kids at the center. So that's all I wanted to add. And, and I really just wanna thank you both for the opportunity to, um, to just have this conversation. I think it's an important one and I'm really thankful. We'll make sure to put uh, the link to Full Circle in the show notes in case people want to click on that and find out more about Chris's work and your work with him. So for sure. uh, thank you for mentioning that. Yeah, thanks, uh, Corey. It's, it's, again, it's been quite a pleasure just uh, hearing you speak and uh, you being able to summarize in quite few words what I think it would take me uh, pages and pages to, to talk about and speak about. Um, it's always a pleasure. So thanks for taking the time to uh, help us educators become better at helping our kids achieve their very, very best. Great. Thank you both. Take okay. care. Thanks, Corey. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye.